All right. Well, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59. Uh, We've been going through Isaiah for some time now, um, and uh, this week we're up to Isaiah 59. Um, I'm going to read it as we go along through, um, but please open it uh, so you can follow along. Uh, Every now and then you come to a passage of Scripture... Um, that hardly seems like it was written thousands of years ago, uh, which of course it was, um, but it describes our, our day so perfectly that you might think it was written now, uh, or very recently. Uh, Isaiah 59, 14 and 15, I think is such, is just such a passage. Uh, Isaiah writes, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Uh, I think uh, it seems from what I hear on uh, various, uh, in various circles, everyone seems to agree that truth and justice are lacking in the public square. Uh, On one hand, you have people who say um, that truth and justice have been lacking for many years, um, twisted for generations even, uh, favouring one group of people at the expense of the rest of society. Uh, On the other hand, um, you say that there are are people that say that the truth is only just now undermined uh, and justice with it. Um, That uh, recent... Um, stories and, and ideas that are being promoted in the public square are undermining truth and justice. Uh, each group in this spectrum uh, accuse the other of ignoring facts and logic. Each accuse the other of propagating injustice. And regardless of, of who you agree with, it seems that at least we can all agree that truth is lacking and justice is turned back. What a wonderful world we live in. But of course, that's just where the Bible meets us. This chapter in Isaiah is all about how justice can and will be brought about in a world characterised by injustice. Uh, This chapter is shaped like a story with five acts, uh, which as we'll see first, challenge the injustice of Isaiah's day, and indeed of our day, and then give a picture of how injustice can be turned around and how justice can be established. Um, You'll see that in your bulletins. The first act uh, of this chapter is confrontation in the first three verses. Uh, Isaiah 59 opens with Isaiah launching into a direct confrontation of Jerusalem's sins. Uh, Let's read the first three verses. Uh, Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. Uh, 
Uh, if you've been a Christian or been around church circles for any length of time, I think you've probably been told that God always hears and answers prayers. Uh, that's who God is. That's what he does. Um, and if you've heard that before and that's what you believe, then I think you have to admit these verses are quite alarming. Because Isaiah is telling God's people, he's not listening to you and it's all your fault. Isaiah says, you have pushed God away by your sin. You've built a wall that he cannot, that will not pass. Uh, he, you've disgusted him, Isaiah says. You are, your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. I uh, imagine you, you're, you're married to someone who works in an abattoir. Uh, they, they spend their day slaughtering animals and perhaps butchering them as well. And one day they come home without having washed up. Uh, they're still wearing their messy, bloody apron. Their hands are covered in blood and guts. And they walk in the door and say, Honey, I'm home. What do you want to do? Do you want to hug them? Do you want to hold their hands? Do you want to, to, to take their face in your hands and kiss them? No. You'd be repulsed by the, the mess on their clothes. As much as you love that person, the blood is, is, is disgusting. Well, Isaiah says uh, that injustice is exactly the same. The injustice that characterizes the human condition stains your hands like blood. And God is repulsed. He won't help you. He doesn't want to look at you, says Isaiah to the God's people of his day. But you don't, e- you don't even know the half of it yet. Uh, that, the uh, next few verses are Act 2, where Isaiah really digs down and, and uh, explains the corruption of his people. Uh, in verse 4, Isaiah switches from the second person, your sins, uh, to the third person, their works. And I think that's because this, what he's about to say is such a horrifying, vivid, bleak description of sin that a direct accusation would just be so unpalatable that no one would even listen. Um, so Isaiah sort of talks about it in the third person. This is what they're like. But it's still addressed to the same people. It's still all about Jerusalem's corruption. This is a detailed, detestable, despicable description of their corruption of justice. Uh, Let's read verses 4 to 8. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. 
They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Uh, In this society that Isaiah describes, there's no regard for a court of law, no desire to see justice when they do go to a court of law. Uh, There's no honesty, no decency, no peace, no respect. They have no knowledge of the way of peace, says Isaiah. Only the way of violence. Imagine asking such a person for directions. The only roads they know are Murder Street and Assault Avenue and Riotous Square and Assassin's Alley. They love that stuff. They run to evil. What a description of society. What a corruption of justice. Uh, Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that in the Old Testament, uh, justice is quite a rich and broad term. In fact, it can describe anything um, that contributes to peaceful relationships between people or between people and God. Uh, It involves treating all people with respect and decency in every area of life. And and so you can pervert justice uh, without going anywhere near a courtroom. Uh, So when Isaiah talks about uh, perverting justice, he's not just talking about judges or lawyers, uh, people who pervert justice in a court of law. Uh, He's not only talking about those who sue others for others' gain, although that's Uh, Sorry, for their own gain, although that's clearly uh, something that he describes. Uh, But it's also neglecting to treat others kindly in all sorts of areas of life. Uh, It's about people committing all sorts of corruption and abuse and oppression and injustice. Uh, It's about people failing to uphold and promote peace in their relationships and in the relationships of people around them. It's about people whose lives and relationships are fractured and twisted. The sort of people who sit at the centre of so many messy relationships because they refuse to put their own interests aside to pursue peace. And it's about people who should know better. People who have experienced the grace and blessings of God and yet refuse to show that grace and mercy to others around them. But it's not just about a small subset of of society, Isaiah says. No one enters suit justly. No one does what is righteous. Uh, We read earlier from Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham asked God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were just ten just and righteous people there. And in this society, in Jerusalem, in Isaiah's day, he says there is no one righteous. No one just. Not one. Uh, You might reasonably wonder then how on earth this can be turned around. How will this corruption of justice be undone? How will true justice be established? Uh, Well, of course, the first step, surely, uh, is for people to acknowledge and recognize their sin, uh, their guilt, their role in all this. Uh, And so that leads us to act number three, the confession. 
uh, just as an aside as we approach these next few verses, I think it's impressive that we see Isaiah leading this public confession of Israel's uh, sin. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, how rare it is for righteous people to take responsibility for the sins of others, to lead society in a confession like this. Uh, what would you expect someone to do uh, in this situation after they so thoroughly confronted and condemned the society around them? How would you, what would you expect them to say next? Probably something like, I'm not like them. Yeah, this is what they're doing, a small portion of society. God, don't, don't, don't throw me away with them. That, that's what they're doing. Maybe have grace on them, that'd be nice. But, but I'm doing okay. But Isaiah instead, we see in verses 9 to 13, leads Jerusalem in a public prayer of confession. Uh, He starts with the consequences of of their sin, verses 9 to 11. He says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigour, We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Uh, This picture starts bleak with Israel in hopeless darkness and it gets worse and worse from there. So that in the end, Isaiah says, he, he likens them lying on the ground to lying on the ground like dead people, moaning and groaning in mortal agony. It's a pitiful picture. And yet they're shown no pity. Justice is far from us. Salvation is far from us. We hope for justice, but there is none. Now, even here, you might you might expect Isaiah to have said that these are the consequences, but... Uh, we're all suffering and it's only a few people who have sinned. He might, again, distance himself from all this, but he doesn't. He fully, unreservedly owns and confesses the sins of his people. Uh, Read with me verses 12 and 13. Isaiah says, "Our Our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Uh, Now you might read those verses uh, and think that that confession doesn't really match the condemnation that we started with. Uh, He talked earlier in the chapter about all sorts of violence and injustice and corruption. And now he's talking about more inward things in their relationship with God. But as Isaiah knows, the failure to acknowledge and honour God, this deliberate turning away from him, rejecting him as king and lord, that is the essence of sin. 
Uh, the violence and injustice and corruption that he described before are just symptoms, as it were. Uh, at its core, sin is rejecting God. And it's not just about is, uh, Isaiah and Jerusalem. Uh, earlier in, in this year when we talked, uh, when we went through the New City Catechism, uh, we asked, what is sin? The answer, sin is rejecting and ignoring God in the world that he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. And that's exactly what Isaiah is describing here. Rejecting and ignoring God rebelling against him by living without reference to him. And when you see it in that light, it makes perfect sense that Isaiah would include himself in this confession. Again, you might ask why Isaiah is lumping himself in with all this violence and injustice and those awful people that he described earlier in the chapter. When he spent the last 58 and a half chapters condemning that sort of behaviour. Obviously, he's not taking part in those sorts of things. But the sin that he's confessing, the sin at the core, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, that is something we are all guilty of. Not just the corrupt Jews that Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah was guilty of it. Everyone in the world around us today is guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. And you're guilty of it. We are all alike sinners. Uh, That's why when Paul wrote uh, Romans 3, as Chris just read out to us, all, both Jews and Greeks, and we might say Australians as well in there as well, all are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. Uh, and, Isaiah, and Paul picked up on this same language that Isaiah used, the violence uh, that he described. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. Again, you might read that and think, well, I'm not a violent person. I've never shed blood. But if you think that, you've missed the point. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Isaiah is saying. Regardless of whether you've committed these specific sins, that's irrelevant. Uh, If you look up in a medical textbook or Google any disease, you'll see a big long list of symptoms that are typically associated with that disease. But you can have the sickness without showing all of those exact symptoms, right? And in the same way, We are all sinners. We are all rebels against God, regardless of which specific symptoms we exhibit, what sins we commit. And that's why we all, regardless of how righteous you think you are, regardless of whether you can point to others more more right, more unrighteous than you, regardless of whether you're on God's side against injustice, all of us need to confess our sins to God. (coughs) Uh, And we expect that's the first step in establishing justice. Uh, And we would be right. The next act is correction. 
He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Uh, Just like the vest of a PSO, God's armour here is a symbol of justice and protection, a source of comfort to those in danger. When he puts it on, it tells you everything you need to know about what he's going to do. He's going to bring about justice. He's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to reign eternally in righteousness. The Lord will bring salvation by his own mighty hand. Uh, Now, this is referring to a few different things to various degrees. Um, From Isaiah's perspective, in the relatively short term, uh, this would have been a reference to God's act in rescuing his people from exile. God brings them justice in restoring Israel to the promised land. Uh, At the same time, in an ultimate long-term sense, uh, in our future as well, um, this refers to God coming in judgment at the end of time to end all rebellion against him and renew the world in righteousness. Uh, But what I want to focus on for the next couple of minutes uh, is how this foretells the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, When there was no justice, no righteousness on earth because of the hardness and sinfulness of humanity, God saw that there was no justice and his own arm brought salvation. God brought about righteousness himself. Jesus brought about righteousness by taking on flesh, by living righteousness and submitting himself to the unjust judgments of people. Jesus brought about righteousness by dying to satisfy the wrath that God had against us And he imputed to us, as Chris said earlier, his righteousness in place of our sin so that we can come to God and be welcomed before him. Uh, Jesus brought about righteousness by rising from the dead to deliver us from the consequences that Isaiah talked about earlier. And he brings about righteousness even still today by his spirit whom he's put within us, whom he sent from heaven to live in us and transform us into his likeness. All of this, of course, was summed up in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Uh, And we've been talking about that so many times in so so many different ways this morning, uh, how there is just one way that we can be righteous before God. Righteousness and justice come through the death and resurrection of Jesus and in no other way. Jesus brings about righteousness. Uh, Well, we've seen confrontation, corruption, confession, correction. And now in the final act, all will be put right and the loose ends will be tied up. Act five is communion. God tells us how he will restore communion out with him. Uh, Verses 20 and 21, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. 
As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, These verses give Isaiah and his readers a tantalizing glimpse of a new reality, a reality that would come after righteousness has been established on earth. Uh, These verses tell of a people, the people of God, a people who turn from transgression, unlike, of course, the Israelites described earlier in the chapter. Uh, these people live on Zion, the, uh, the great idealized version of Jerusalem, uh, the perfect city of God where God dwells with his people. Uh, this people is built around a redeemer, a spirit-filled leader of God's people. Um, in English, uh, it's a bit hard to tell, but in, uh, in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, uh, the, verse, the U in these verses is singular. Uh, This person is one person that has the Spirit here. Uh, In the opening verses, the U was plural, referring to all of Jerusalem. But in verse 21, the U is singular. God is addressing one Spirit-anointed person uh, as a leader of God's people. (coughs) Um, And we've seen this person a couple of times already in Isaiah. There's, There's... Uh, a spirit-anointed person come up in chapter 11 uh, and he's been identified as the righteous branch. Uh, In chapter 42, there was another spirit-anointed person, well, the same spirit-anointed person, but uh, he came up again, the servant of Yahweh. Uh, And so we know that this person that God's addressing here is the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, who brings justice on the earth, will also gather God's faithful people into communion with him. Uh, God talks here about the new covenant. Uh, And in that new covenant, God's spirit will rest upon each of his people. Uh, As as it were, Jesus' offspring. Uh, And God will never break fellowship with them again. His spirit will not depart. That is God's solemn oath. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. (coughs) Uh, Now, of course, this was just a glimpse of a fairly distant future for Isaiah and his hearers, uh, one that gave them hope and uh, by which they were saved. But we know so much more now uh, because we know that Jesus has come as the Messiah. He has, he has established justice. Uh, he has imputed his righteousness to us. He has brought us into communion with God. And he has given us his spirit who will never be taken away. Uh, and yet there is still so much more to come, of course. Uh, we are still waiting for Jesus to come back, to repay to his enemies' judgment We are still waiting for him to come to Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob. Uh, Isaiah, uh, sorry, Paul quotes these verses in Romans chapter 11 to talk about what will happen when Jesus returns. The new covenant is here. God's righteousness burns within us by his spirit and yet we long to see that. We wait to see it fully manifested in the world. Uh, So how should we wait 
how should we live as we wait? Uh, Well, I think there's three lessons that we can take away from this chapter uh, as we close. Uh, The first thing I think we should learn is to pray like Isaiah. Uh, We've seen how Isaiah saw the great sinfulness of the people around him. He saw their sin for all its ugliness. Um, And I'm sure many of you see the same sins uh, coming up in the world around us. But when he prayed to God, he didn't try to distance himself from it in any way, as we saw. Instead, he saw how his heart was sinful like theirs. And so he prayed in public confession, acknowledging to God his own sin along with the sins of his people. I think that's a posture that we need to learn as well. Uh, These days, more than ever, we're pushed to take a side, to get caught up in in an us-and-them game. Uh, You're either a Christian or you're the world. You're either uh, these people or those people. You know, they're the sinful ones. We're doing what we can over here. What a beautiful posture it would be then to take this tool of public confession and own our sin. Not just to say, you're a sinner going to hell. Not even just to say, you're a sinner going to hell and I am one too. Or I, I, would, that, I would be that if not for the grace of Jesus. But to stand up and say, our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. What a humble posture that is. I think non-Christians should hear us humbling ourselves before God and each other in deep heartfelt confession of sin. What a wonderful witness that would be uh, and what a wonderful testament and uh, opportunity for the gospel to touch our hearts as well. Uh, Secondly, we need to learn from the gospel truth that is at the core of this passage, that there is righteousness to be found only in the person uh, person and work of Jesus Christ and in no one else. Uh, We sang it this morning, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that there is righteousness to be found in nowhere else, in no one else? Uh, Do you believe that there is no other way for righteousness to come about on earth? Uh, No other way for righteousness to come about in you. No other way for God to accept you as righteous than through Jesus' death and resurrection. God must save us by his mighty hand because there is no other way. Uh, Anyone who tells you that we can or should bring about justice in society by example or by protest or by education or by politics, if someone says that those things can effectively bring about justice, they're in effect implying that Jesus didn't need to come and die. 
because all we need to do is just do better as a society. If someone says that uh, we can bring about justice in ourselves by working harder, uh, by doing more, uh, by associating with the right people or anything like that, as important as these things are, if, the, if people tell you that the, we can achieve justice and righteousness in our own lives without the work of Jesus Christ, without the Spirit of God acting within us, they're telling you that Jesus didn't need to come and die. God's own hand must bring about salvation and justice. There is no other way. All other ground is sinking sand. If you want to see righteousness come about in yourself, you need to believe in Jesus. Uh, If you want to know the righteousness of God, you must achieve it through the work of the Spirit of God within you. If you want to see justice established in this world, then you need to call everyone else to believe in Jesus as well. Justice starts in the heart, the heart that is transformed by Jesus. Uh, And ultimately, uh, if you want to see justice established in this world, then you ought to pray that Jesus' return would come soon. Because when Jesus returns, then all unrighteousness will end and God himself will reign with justice and truth. Uh, So, three lessons. We need to learn to pray like Isaiah. We need to learn to trust that Jesus is our only hope for justice. And thirdly and finally, we need to learn to follow Jesus in taking up the armour of God. Uh, We read earlier about how God took up righteousness as his breastplate and a helmet of salvation. Uh, And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, calls us to do the same. Uh, Because we wrestle uh, with the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, uh, Paul writes, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We fight against the spiritual forces of evil to bring about righteousness in ourselves, uh, to obey the commands of Jesus in our thoughts and words and deeds. We fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the hope of converting others and teaching others to follow justice and find justice in the person of Jesus. Uh, We don't do that, of course, apart from the gospel of God, but through the gospel of God, through the, the, the truth of Jesus, by reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ, righteous and holy people, and by calling on the Spirit, to make us act according to our new nature. But that will be a spiritual struggle, says Paul. A struggle against the spiritual forces uh, who rule over this world and want to see us conform to it. And so we need to fit ourselves with the strength of God, Paul says, to put on the whole armour of God, to be armed by God's mighty arm to be clothed in God's mighty clothes. What did Isaiah say? He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. But we have, Christ, we have God as our strength, Christ as our hope. 
the Holy Spirit as our power. His Spirit will not depart from us from this time forth and forevermore. Our Redeemer will come like a rushing stream to banish ungodliness from Jacob. And so let's pray that he would help us as we follow him in seeking to establish justice. Uh, Lord God, we do acknowledge um, that we ourselves in our hearts are unjust and unrighteous before you, that we have rebelled against you uh, and that we are just as sinful as the rest. Lord, we are so grateful for the gift of your righteousness that has been imputed to us. That when you look at us, you don't see the the corruption that characterizes us, but you see the righteousness that characterizes Jesus. Our Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would continue um, to work powerfully in our hearts to bring about, to make that righteousness uh, not just um, an, an imputed righteousness, but a lived righteousness as well until you come and establish righteousness throughout the whole world and banish ungodliness. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.